0: have some really exciting news to share with you guys thanks to your support a personal dream of mine came true and we made apple's new and noteworthy section Ah! we have a hundred extra dollars a month coming in from listeners who decided to become patrons Ah! and four companies reached out to advertise on our program which could really help us with production costs Ah! and i turned them all down Ah! terrible terrible decision i'm probably going to regret in the future but i have a vision that this is going to be completely audience funded from listeners who like the program or like the stories on the website now to make up for such a clearly dumb business decision we've made some changes to patronage and why you should help support us with a monthly contribution without further ado here is a message from the overlords at hello humans who want this program to succeed
1: Well, friends, we are no longer the woo-woo optimists operating out of an idealistic pipe dream that people will contribute out of the kindness of their hearts and receive nothing in return. Gone is that ridiculousness. We are now ruthless capitalists exchanging our goods for cold, hard cash while Adam Smith smiles down upon us. Yes, friends, you heard right. Your pledge will now grant you special treatment. Eat cake, you non-patron plebs. Five a month will get you early access to the podcast when I'm fast enough at editing to actually make that possible. 10 a month, ask our guest a question. 20 a month exclusive opportunities to record your own message to share with the world and for 50 a month we will mention whatever cause or website you think our audience should know about and that's not it all patrons will receive a discount for all our amazing human items that will be available in our store when we figure out how to mail things So pledge allegiance to the pod and help us replace your addiction to sensationalized, fear-mongering entertainment with some mood-altering substance that will nourish your soul.
0: So with that said, if you love this program, you want to see what other programs we have in store, you want to see what else we can bring to the world, go to patreon.com slash hellohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hello human and you know I personally guarantee if you pitch in five or ten bucks a month I personally guarantee you will spend a hundred bucks a year or whatever on something way dumber than helping two people to try and build a company to bring some mood-altering substance into the world so I'm not saying we'll never get sponsors I could see it working if it's a product I already love and would talk about anyway but for now at least I want to keep trying to make this audience funded all right Here's the program you actually tuned in for. Part of being human means going through some crazy, hard experiences. But no matter how crazy or complex your life becomes, at the end of the day, you only have one job, survive. We all have those times where we feel like, how on earth am I gonna get through this? But here's the good news, you were born to survive. You are the direct descendant of survivors, the ones who kept going, the ones who persevered, the ones who pushed through everything in their way so one day you could get this life you're living. Today's guest is New York Times bestselling author, Janine Roth, who has survived the unsurvivable, lives an amazing life, and this conversation is so dense with amazing topics and solutions and tips and stories, from losing all her money to Bernie Madoff, to childhood trauma, to you name it, it's in here. We've also coordinated the launch of this episode with the release of her new book, This Messy Magnificent Life, which boy, if that's not totally Hello Humans-esque, I don't know what is. So if after the episode, you want more of Janine, which you will, go buy the new book and then check out her older ones too, it's great. My name is Sam Lamont. welcome to the How To Human podcast. Without further ado, here is our guest, Janine Roth. I think we're good. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna have a glass of water. Hello, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Sam.
0: Thanks for having us in your home.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to see you, and happy to be with you.
0: I'm happy to have you on. Um, so I've realized I've come to realize that this is a, a huge question to lead off with. Uh, but rather than introduce people, I fi- I think it's really interesting to hear how people describe themselves. So. Who are you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, That is quite a question and it depends on the level that you're asking me on. I think there's a horizontal level of in the world and then a vertical level of meaning and uh, who I am when I wake up in the middle of the night and who I am in those moments where uh, my faith is tested. So I'll talk about the horizontal level first.
0: Yeah, can we do both? Can we jump right in?
2: (laughs) Yeah, sure, we can do that. Um, The horizontal level is work and what I do in the world. And that is writing and that is working, just sort of like getting the message out that no situation is unworkable. And that it's really okay. And uh, no matter what you're going through, it's possible actually to unwind. I think after having experienced so much in my own life, I was just talking to my cousin about this this morning, about that um, old adage that you choose your parents. And we were laughing about that because we were saying, yeah, if we chose our parents... We decided to come into the school of hard knocks this time, and um, I feel like having been through what I was through with my childhood with drug addiction in terms of my parents and, uh, and alcohol addiction and physical abuse and sexual abuse, having gone through all that, somehow it instilled in me, this is still on the world level, um, the desire to both work it through, and then to speak about it so that people wouldn't feel alone and know that it's, that they too can work through it. So I'm pretty committed to that. I'm pretty committed to uh, having people um, read what I write and then feel like they're not alone. That's on the, that's on the horizontal level of work. On the vertical level of who I am in the middle of the night and who I am at my best and worst moments, that's what we're talking about, I would say that um, that's something I have... That question is one that I've been looking at probably since I went to India. Uh, a very long time ago, in the mid-70s. I know this is really dating me. uh, (laughs) When I was two, of course, in the mid-70s, when I went to India, um, of wanting to know what was here besides the world of appearances, besides what I could see, besides what everybody else was valuing, besides what the culture was, you know, holding up as dear and precious and successful. Uh, I needed to find out was there something else because I became aware then that I was gonna die. Death has really been a big thing for me. Yeah, me too. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was yeah. the the weird esoteric kid. Yeah, wondering about death. I mean, I was asking about it when I was eight years old, and yeah. I found some ref- refuge in religion. Right. Yeah. And uh, my mom was just like, oh, there's a heaven. And so that's not quite what I believe now. But it got me it got me through sometimes. But I was always very aware of my mortality. Yes. For better or worse. I think right. it's a double edged sword.
2: Right. Yeah. And so I think because of that, at least for me, I committed, Well, I, you know, committed myself sounds very active. But really, there was this longing to see what then if I was going to die, first of all, it didn't seem fair. It didn't seem like, what? We go through all of this and then we die? Uh, so th- given that, that was true because I saw burning bodies in Benares, uh, and uh, my boyfriend when I was 16 died. And so I became very aware that I too was going to die. And so if I was going to die, then how did I want to live? And what did it mean somehow? How how did I want to spend my breaths, as I say in my book, what, on what? And because I've, I feel like my mind still is very crazy, mm-hmm. and so when I wake up in the middle of the night, like I did last night, just last night, I woke up and it's just, <laughs> and you did this wrong, and you did that wrong, and there's that, and this is going to turn disastrous, and there's just this whole racket scary story thing and 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 draw to negativity yeah. that I still feel like I have. But on that level, on the vertical level, I feel like I'm learning how to be aware of that rather than just get engaged and merged with it and in that experiencing some freedom and everyday joy, not because of anything I'm doing or accomplishing, but just because.
0: Not connected to your accomplishments or failures. No,
2: nothing to do with it because you know it doesn't matter. On some level,
0: it doesn't matter. It's a really high goal. You're kind of sitting there. I, I feel, know. I feel pressure now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But you know what? Here's the thing that I learned. You can't go to sleep clutching a New York Times bestseller and thinking, I am this. This is who I am. Or even, you know, with Matt, my husband, who I really love and we've been together for a lot of years. I'm still going to sleep in my own skin, not his. Yeah, And I'm still waking up in my own skin, not his. And so that is aloneness at its very essence. He can't live for me. He can't die for me. And he can't wake up in the middle of the night for me. I mean, I I sort of turn around. He's still there. He's sleeping. I'm up and down, up and down, up and down five times. And he's just sleeping peacefully away. And, you know, there's some part of me that says, wake up, the world's falling apart. But, you know, I... um. Then I sort of watch my mind and that's what I've learned to do. That's sort of the value of the practice that I do is watching.
0: I do find that practice really useful to almost take an out-of-body step backwards and just watch the crazy thoughts go by. Yeah. But not really that they're your crazy thoughts. Just kind of watch them like fish or something swimming by. Yeah. Going, well, that was some neurotic thought right yes, there. Wow, yeah, exactly. look at that. Exactly.
2: Not yeah. take them personally. Yeah. Not I, take the thoughts personally.
0: It's interesting to see the, the deja vu fish keep going by where it's like, well, you just swam by a second ago. <laughs> you know, like that's taking up a lot of space in my head. The same thought kind of in this right. crazy cycle.
2: Yes, but then again, it's not taking it personally. I mean, I feel like people have about three themes in their lives. That's it. Right. They Well, everybody's got different ones. My three themes that I've been going around and around and around on since I've probably been six um, have to do with not being lovable, feeling like I'm damaged at the core of me, not being enough. Like that. Oh, the main theme, which I call the little match girl theme, is feeling like I don't belong. Feeling like the center of warmth or warm is over there. The myth of the little match girl is she's standing out in the cold in rags with no shoes on in the snow and she's looking at the happy loving family on the other side of the picture window roasting a turkey in little velvet dresses kissing and hugging each other and having a really good time and that is something that she will never be a part of never be invited into never belong to that love is' that love and belonging is impossible for her I'd say that's pretty much if I was going to give you one theme that I go around and around with and I'll it pops in the middle of the night. There it is in many different forms. But, you know, if I'm really sharp, and of course, because I don't sleep that well, you know, then I'm up and it's like, oh, there you are again, like that fish you were talking about. And when I'm caught on to it, I don't believe it. I'm able to just say, okay, there you go. I get it. Or I'm able to be kind. The other thing is kindness you know just turning towards myself in those moments and saying oh sweetheart i'm so sorry this is coming up again yeah. you know just a a sort of fierce kindness
0: yeah um yeah i have i think one of my themes is the not belonging thing yeah. where there's some fantasy in my mind where i'll be part of this like crazy community, like almost like the skater kids that are always together every single day and then we'll hop in a van and go travel <laughs> across the country. It'll never, be will <laughs> never, I have this amazing band of friends and, uh, but that's not us, you know, we're right. not. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, I went to the University of Hard Knocks. Uh, I've even put that on resumes because I am a college dropout where I've said, listen, I've I've been, I'm like 10 years older than I right. am on paper. yeah. Uh, but we went through it at different times in our lives, and um, I feel like, at least in in my experience, I was more responsible for my hard knocks than some of your hard knocks. And uh-huh. i was curious if you could um, take us through some of the the stuff you've gone through. And I'm I'm really curious. I guess at the the end of the day, because it happened to you so early, was that is that how it transitioned into your mission? Or was there the floundering period in young adulthood where you had to find out that this, writing about this and sharing with the world, um, your flaws and your unpolished side, at what point did that become your purpose?
2: You know, I wanted to write starting in fifth grade. I wrote my very first story about this little girl on an airplane who saves the day, of course. The pilot gets sick and the flight attendants are throwing up. And she, I don't know what she does, but she saves the day. Um, And I remember the feeling of writing then and feeling that it transported me. And it was ecstatic, I I never thought I could write so the mission as you described it didn't start then I I put writing aside for a very very long time and put communicating of any kind uh, be, uh to the side because I didn't think I could do it <clears throat> given that one of my main uh ways I thought about myself was being damaged and not being enough and not being able to do those kinds of things. So I I think by the time I was 28, after having gone through that when I was growing up with very unhappy parents, really just miserable together and in themselves parents, uh, and then turning to eating and food and having an eating disorder and starving myself and then gaining huge amounts of weight and starving myself again and being wildly self-loathing, wildly self-loathing. I don't think I even knew then through all those years of eating that my childhood had anything to do with anything. I just think I thought that I was fat. And and because I couldn't lose weight, because I also believed that if I lost weight and I was thin, everything would be great. So I just couldn't do it. I couldn't get it together. I, no matter how many diets I went on, and I went on a ton of diets, um, I just couldn't keep the weight off and therefore I felt responsible myself for my own suffering because I felt like it was about my lack of willpower and it was because of how damaged I was. And so by the time I was 28, I still hadn't written. I still hadn't written a lot. I mean, I loved writing, but I just didn't think I could do it. I just didn't. It just felt like all these other people can, but I can't. And I don't know how they do it. I just couldn't make the leap there. And it all came together for me. Um, it was the the nadir of my suffering where I wanted to kill myself and was just a couple of days away from killing myself. And because of my weight, it seemed like because of my weight, but really because of the self-loathing, I couldn't stand myself. I I, I just felt like eating and binging was the way that I expressed my self-loathing. I wanted to rip myself apart. And at that bottom of it all... I realized I could change. I could give myself a couple of weeks and stop depriving, shaming, torturing, fearing myself, punishing myself with food. I I could try it, which meant not dieting. And that was also the time where I started to write. Yeah. I joined a writing group and I modeled myself exactly. And I'm in favor of models on my teacher, Ellen Bass, who has since become a poet. But in those days, taught a writing group called Writing About Our Lives, was a writing teacher. And I went to that every single week for years. And although nobody thought I was a good writer in that group, there were some good writers and I wasn't amongst them. I fell in love with writing and I decided no matter what I did, if I had to make avocado and cheese sandwiches at the health food store for the rest of my life, which I was doing to make money in those days, that's what I would do.
0: How do you make money making avocado Uh, and For the deli? Yeah, oh, Okay. <laughs> for,
2: for a deli yeah. in Santa Cruz, which is where I lived. And I lived in a house with a couple other people. My rent was cheap. I didn't have a car. I had a bicycle. And the avocado and cheese sandwiches were enough to pay for my rent and pay for my food. And that's all I cared about.
0: Wow. Was, was your writing, did it start off from um, sharing the stuff you had been through? Or did no. It, did it start off with like a, a really fun novel? Or, no, no. Uh, it didn't
2: start out with, it was just the very first piece that I remember writing and sharing. Well, actually I wrote poems because as I said, I modeled myself on Ellen Bass and she was a writing teacher So I, uh, with weekly groups. So I started weekly groups for women who wanted to work with their relationship with food because by that time I had cl- started climbing my way out. Of the whole obsession. So I started weekly groups and then I started writing poetry, which she was doing, and started submitting to anthologies. So I wrote a lot of poetry and then I wrote short nonfiction stories, which she didn't do, but I knew I could do. And, you know, got submitted them to my writing class and we went over them and they tore them apart while at the same time, you know, trying to give me support. And then one of them got accepted in an anthology. And, uh, no, it was more the desire to write than to write about anything in particular. And because Ellen had worked on an anthology of poetry called No More Masks, I thought, oh, I'll work on an anthology. And mine was called Feeding the Hungry Heart. Uh, It was an anthology. I put out a call for women dealing with their relationship with food and got back a lot of submissions. And... Then I I turned in the proposal to 26 publishers, and I got 25 rejections. And one of them said, okay, I'd like to see what you've written. And uh, of course, I hadn't written anything yet, but I lied. And I said, oh, right, I have the whole thing. I'm coming to New York. Can I meet you? And I met her. I sort of like wormed my way into her office for a 10-minute meeting um, uh, just fell in love with her. She was fabulous. And she liked me a lot too. And so she started um, calling me every week or every two weeks asking me where the manuscript was. And I kept lying and saying it was coming. And in the meantime, I was stuck. I just felt like <laughs> I can't do this. Oh, my God, this is a big chance and I can't do it. So finally I called her and I said, I can't do it. I've been lying to you the entire time. And I don't care if I ever ride again as long as I live because this pressure is too much. And she said, I believe in you. Here's my home number. Call me anytime. She was an angel.
0: What a crazy connection. It was great. Yeah. She was great. I have a lot of questions that are bouncing through my head, but you started, uh, like, I guess, when you were finally aware that you had a ton of, unhealthy habits in your life, like your relationship with food. Um, and you started to recognize it. And you're at the starting point. What was your journey from from there from the wow, I got it. I'm I'm done with this cycle. I feel like I, I need to be at the end of the cycle. Or was it abruptly done for you? I guess where did the change start to happen?
2: Yeah, good question. And you know, when you asked that question, I just I reflected right away, and I realized that something happened then, that has carried through for the whole rest of all of these many years, and that was that I understood that it was through trusting. um, Myself wasn't exact is not exactly the way to say it, but trusting. Uh, gee, I don't even know how to say it because I don't think I've ever said it before. I stopped dieting, which was radical, radical, because I had either only been on a diet or a binge every day for 17 years. I had no idea what not dieting and not binging. That's how
0: I am to this day. I mean, I wish I could say I figured it out, but that's how I am to this day. I'm either in this radical race of self-improvement or I'm just completely tearing it all down. Yes, and right. And it's an awful cycle. Yes. Yeah.
2: It is painful, really painful, that cycle. Yeah, I really understand having lived that, and I would say really suffered from that because the building it all up, and for me it was dieting but also after I stopped dieting and I sort of worked my way through the relationship with food by understanding that that trusting something much more essential than my whims um, trusting that there was some, Kind of guidance. I don't even know how to say it anyway because I actually haven't said it before, but that there was something I could trust about life itself um, that uh, would pull me through. And so when I stopped dieting and told myself, you can eat what your body wants. And the first day I was terrified because I had never done that. And so for the next couple of weeks, I just ate raw chocolate chip cookie batter dough. And th- finally I caught on, no, this isn't exactly it. Hello. Um, so then I had to cycle through, oh, but what's it like to actually listen to myself? And I had never been curious about that. I had been so scared of myself because I had thought... Do you want to stop
0: it or- While her dog settles down, just going to take this opportunity to say, Hey, do you like this program? Do you want to hear more of this program? Do you want to send me out on $100 flights with 15 hour layovers so I can get an in-person interview that you love? www.patreon.com slash HelloHuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash HelloHuman. You can cancel it any Okay, that's the last time I'll say it this episode. Back to the interview. Do you have any idea where to pick up?
2: <laughs> I think we're talking about food and trust and. Um, oh,
0: the early stages of transformation.
2: Right. I think so. Oh, so I think the more when I started actually eating what my body wanted, oh, and being curious, that's what the big change was for me. I started turning towards what was scary to me and what was uncomfortable rather than trying to get rid of it. You know, the big fix-me-up project. Um, Always feeling like if only I could get rid of this part, and if only I could get rid of that part, it was like I used to feel um, about losing weight. If only I could lose weight, then what would be left would be this thin, sparkling, shiny version of me, and that's the same with a project of me, or what I call the me project. Well, okay, well, let me fix my selfishness and let me fix my reactivity and how mean I can be sometimes, or the fact that I hold grudges. Let me just sort of excise those parts from me by doing God knows what. Um, and then what will be left is this sparkling, sane, generous, loving person that everybody wants to love. Um, so I stop doing that on the food level. Mm-hmm. I just started asking myself, what was I using food to do, which meant really going down into parts of myself that I hadn't really touched because who wanted to anyway? And I just thought, um, I just, I just needed to lose weight and it would all be good. So that was a turn for me. That was a turn of treating myself with a lot of kindness and, and, um, and spaciousness. And those things had never even occurred to me to treat myself like that. I was harsh with myself. I was mean with myself. I was judgmental about myself. I kept myself on a very short leash. And if I messed up, you know, it was bad. I just could hardly climb back from that. I mean, I call that voice at this point, the crazy ant in the attic voice because it's shrieking and barking worse than Izzy's bark um, all day long. You did this wrong and you did that wrong and you, shouldn't, you need to do this and you need to do that. And oh my God, I can't believe you messed that up. And um, I've just come to sort of most of the time, not all the time, Hear that? Hear her? Or sometimes I call that the GPS from the Twilight Zone, um, and know that it doesn't have my best interest. It, I mean, it does. It's trying to protect me, but it doesn't work. So it was about not, not listening and believing that voice and seeing if there was something else that I could find in myself, and I could only find that by turning towards the discomfort. And being kind with myself.
0: It's really easy to to love that criticism of yourself and love that um, harshness with yourself because it seems like, well, this is why anything gets done, you know, and this is That's why th- right. this is why things get done to a high standard. And because I'm so critical of myself, yes. it's actually why my work is better than everyone yes. else's. And so my question to you is, uh, how do you be kind to yourself and still take action, still get things done, and still give your work the attention and and love that it needs to become something that's showable or, you know.
2: That's such a good question, Sam. And because I've been asking that question in a thousand different ways for a long, long time, beginning from when I stopped dieting. And... And believed that the rest of my life I would be binging in front of the TV with curlers in my hair, eating bonbons and watching TV all day because not dieting and not restricting seemed to equal indulging mm-hmm. and never getting anything. Just eating, you know, if I didn't judge myself harshly for what I ate, then why would I ever eat well?
0: I feel like that's where I am at this current impasse right. is where I'm no longer doing the huge swings. I'm trying to be kind to myself, but it also means that I'm eating corn dogs. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out how to do the action without pulling out the the whip yes. and, and punishing myself with my work and with, with food, which is a new coping mechanism. It's in it's in the absence of alcohol and drugs yes. and sex and all these other things that had previously become coping me- mechanisms, yes, right. my disease is more. I call it more. It yes. wants more money, more everything, more pleasure. And so I've successfully created some sustainability in a lot of different areas. Food is very new for me. It's become a new comfort. I'd say the past two years, though. Not that new, but it's newer in my timeline of things that have been hard with myself about And so I'm at this actual natural impasse. When I interviewed Matt, as I told you, I was on a new diet. I couldn't think straight, um, but I didn't stick with it. And it's something that I actually wish I had stuck with. And so I'm trying to figure out how do I be kind with myself? How do I also get it done?
2: Right. So, you know, I have a couple of different answers to that because I asked myself, that question when I was writing this book, too, because I started writing This Messy, Magnificent Life when I was at the point that I saw that everything I had thought was going to make me happy, all the external things that I thought were going to do it, the if only I had syndrome, um, were lovely, but they didn't do it. And so what was going to do it then? What, and that, that was an internal that was an internal look for me. And so I, I not so intentionally decided that I was going to stop the self-improvement project. Of me, which was frightening because I had been part of a spiritual school for 20 years and I also, which I loved, I, I loved do, doing that, but I had reached a natural end, but I was scared to drop it because does that mean I'd never Contemplate anything again? Does that mean, you know, I, because I had a structure, I went to two retreats a year, and I, um, I had a teacher, and I had an inquiry group, and I had inquiry friends, and oh my God, could I trust myself to do that naturally? And there was some fear there.
0: Yeah, you're th- you're threatening a cornerstone of my life right now.
1: <laughs> <I know. laughs> the
0: self improvement project. <laughs> So, um, without giving away the book, which is great. Thank you for letting (laughs) me read it uh, early.
2: So, what I saw though is that people have, um, and therefore ricochet between the two poles that you're talking about. If I don't whip myself into shape in any number of ways through food, through the self improvement project, through being on a strict X, Y, and Z, then I will indulge, never want to do anything, never work, never feel the inspiration to do my best, basically. If I'm not whipping myself to do my best, how do I do my best? I mean that's sort of the question that you're asking me. Yeah. You're you're basically saying help
0: me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you know, here's what I would say on the simplest possible level, because I've been thinking about this with food again, food is a fabulous metaphor um, and a gateway because we have to eat every single day. And because, as I've said a lot, the world is on your plate. How you are in your relationship with food is how you are in the rest of your life. So your relationship with food and anything else, but let's just take food, um, is a reflection of your beliefs about deprivation, joy, pleasure, scarcity, more, As you're saying, if I say no to that, um, will I ever get enough of what I actually do want? Because I don't really want the food right now, but I do want something. And what happens if I don't get that something, but here's the food, I can have the food. So why not go for the food? Because at least I can have more of something that I want. Yeah, Um, I I think it takes some... um, riding some waves before you see that with food, there is the the gift of feeling well. I mean, you actually feel well
0: until you fin- until you clear the plate. For me,
2: you mean when you clear clear the plate, then you don't know what else to do.
0: Oh, when I'm when I'm comforting myself with food, it feels good until the meal's over and. It, it's so short-lived. Or are you talking about eating good food?
2: Um, well, I was talking about eating good food right oh. there. I was talking about, but there's the thing that you just brought up I was too. thinking
0: of corn dogs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the reason I was talking about good food is because my doctor recently put me on a, a food program, I call it, because I don't like the word diet, um, uh, because of having osteoporosis. And... When he first told me about this, I looked at it and was like, oh my God, I can't do this. There's nothing that I like eating on this thing. And where's all the fun of food and the pleasure of food? What I didn't realize, and now I've been on it for about six months, what I didn't realize... Was that feeling good and having more energy and feeling sort of like um, I'd been, this is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to say it anyway, sort of like a dirty window and that somehow through this process of treating my body really, really well. Um, it feels like somebody took a Windex to my soul and that there's brightness and luminosity there and there's energy that I didn't feel before. That is a direct result of what I'm putting into my body. So, excuse me, I didn't quite get that feeling well would then prompt me to want to feel well and therefore was its own motivation or reward, if you want to say it like that. I went through a month of, oh my God, I just can't believe this. Um, Why would anybody do this? Uh, To then I started feeling better and then I really started feeling better and now I feel great.
0: That's The Catch-22 is the start of it.
2: Yeah, it's the start of it.
0: The start of it. Because I have the personally tested data to know that when i'm eating better and eating cleaner i have so much more energy compared to say i am now uh where i i am sluggish because my diet hasn't been great and i it's it's awful that knowledge is not enough right that it's like i know if i eat the good food i'll feel better but it's still hard to get over the hump into, I mean, I just started going back to the gym after months of not going to the gym. I know for a fact that when I'm not going to the gym, I am at risk of depression and at its worst suicidal thoughts.
2: Yes, I right. know
0: that to be, it's a life or death situation. I need to exercise. Yes. And it's funny how the knowledge isn't enough to sustainability.
2: But maybe there's, um you know, for myself, having... Uh, looked at and and I would say at least been willing to accept, if not work with a lot of uncomfortable feelings like suicidal thoughts, like this um bottom line old decision that unless I was achieving and at the top of my game, I was worth nothing, I wasn't even worth existing on this earth um and i feel like some of those core decisions some of those core beliefs that i still was acting on were at the bottom of me not caring if i didn't f- if i ate and didn't feel so well because this is all that was possible for me was you know walking around in a haze there was some sense some very early sense that you know the really um, positive, and I'm not talking about Pollyanna happy. I'm not talking about that <laughs> at all. Um, you know, la da 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 da. Forget that. You know, I always say I'm an expert. Give me lemonade, I'll turn it into lemons. You know, I am an expert <laughs> at um a lot being aligned with negativity. Yeah. I go there first. What's wrong? Some, Or as a friend of mine said, he wakes up every morning with this thought, something's wrong and who's to blame? And I feel like I have a PhD in that. Yeah. I do. I have a PhD in the lemonade thing. I have a PhD in the negativity, being aligned with negativity, seeing the dark side, being cynical, doubting people, go- the goodness of people. I mean, the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. And slowly... Very slowly, that has been shifting. So, I mean, the thing that I know is that if it's possible for me, it's possible for anybody. Yeah. I really know that. I believe that. It's possible for a human being. I mean, human beings climb Mount Everest. I could, too. Well, I maybe I could have, but I don't want to. You know, but what do I want is to live comfortably in my skin and not take the thoughts seriously of not being worth it. And and also, I think everybody's got that more thing going on, Sam, everybody.
0: And my two poles, to use your language, are I'm better than everyone else, or I'm worse than. Yeah, that's else. how those, everybody those feels. Those are my two poles. I'm either, oh, what'd you do today? Because I went to the gym. <laughs> Did you go to the gym? <laughs> no. And I've started a new diet, and I'm feeling great. Or it's just, oh my gosh, I'm so not worthy to even be in your presence right yeah, now. Those right. are my two modes. Yeah. And the idea, I mean, the the it's like I can go from both extremes, and then but the the shorter travel. To just being a human amongst humans, it's like the hardest journey. I mean, I'll get there. I'll feel it. I'll it feel is. Like, wow. I'm just one of many. You know, I'm one of many of these strange bipedal people, walk- <laughs> you know, walking around. And it's a great place to be. It's a hard place to sustain, though, as well. It's easy to just go right back to the.
2: It is. Yeah, And you know, what I try to do, and this is what I learned through writing this particular book, because I felt like I had to answer that question. Every book I start, I start with the question. And the book is my answer to that question. And through writing, I find out what I know that I didn't know I knew. And that's why I love writing so much. It just takes me to what I really know. But because of all my shticks and, you know, also the ways that I present myself or see myself or want other people to see me, I don't actually let myself know that I know those things. And in writing, I find those things out. And so the question that I started this book with was... Is it possible to drop the project of me, and, and you ask that question, and still be inspired, yeah. really? Um, still work, still, um, still do what I can do, still, what will motivate me to do it if it's not the criticism? And if it's not a particular structure, like seeing a teacher all the time, like seeing a therapist, like being in an inquiry group. And so I had to find that out because the thing was that all those things that I was doing, and this was the big question that I asked, weren't really affecting my day-to-day moment-to-moment life, weren't affecting how I felt about myself. And I felt so negatively about myself that I felt like, well, what has meditating for 30 years given me if it's not given me that for God's sakes? I am a meditation failure. I am a mindfulness failure here because it's not integrating into my life. And I want it to be part of what, how I feel when I walk to the bathroom, Um, get a glass of water, talk to Matt, walk outside. I want to, you know, like be able to see what's here instead of my glazed over version of how bad it all is and how damaged I am and how cynical I am. Uh, and how awful people are. And so that was the big thing. Can it be, can I drop the me project? And is it possible to live like that day to day?
0: Yeah, well, it's it's funny to think about how the, would you say 30 years of meditation how like brief moments of serenity don't really matter if it doesn't add up to some enlightenment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's not even about adding up to enlightenment. It's about what's it like to be you in this moment.
0: Yeah, so in this moment, in your current day-to-day life, what are the most useful kind of practices that aren't strict regiments, but are just things that you do to kind of continue to have the, the best possible life that you can
2: Right. Well, one thing I do a couple of times throughout the day, as my mind tends to wander to catastrophe and disaster and apocalypse, and it does that, um, is ask myself, am I okay now? Am I okay now? Now. Not, how's it going to be for me tonight or this afternoon, but now. Is as am I alive? Are my feet on the ground? Are my legs still functioning? Are my eyes still functioning? Is you know is there anything wrong in this moment when I don't go into my mind to construct a story of what I did yesterday or how I messed up or all of that in this moment? Am I okay? And is there anything wrong? And so I ask myself that three or four times a day. The other thing I do at least a couple of times a day now, is I just sort of go out of my mind and into my body. And that's really hard, because my mind is so interesting and full of fascinating and scary stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's where So that's where the thing is. So I'll just come back into my body and say, Janine, so I'm doing this right now. Feel your feet on the floor. Feel my feet on the floor. Feel the point of contact my feet are making with the floor grounded feel my butt in the chair the just physical sensation butt in chair back against the chair the support of the chair my hands touching each other these hands oh my god these hands you and i were talking about this a little bit before these hands that have lifted and carried and that i've taken for granted these legs that i have taken for granted the biggest things that when people are on their deathbeds they Do not take for granted. They suddenly, and I have Googled Googled this so many times, regrets, deathbeds. What do people say? They wish they had been there for the ordinary moments. Mm -hmm. They wished they had seen, used their eyes to see their ears to listen they wish they had woken up to 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 the life around them instead of this carrying this old story about what was wrong and so a couple of times a day and this whole thing that i'm telling you about right now takes 5 minutes so we're not talking about this rigid intense practice of sitting on a cushion for 30 minutes not that people don't find that um really really helpful. um, I sort of did, not really, but sort of did. Uh, this is integrated every day. This is, as I'm walking out to my writing studio, am I hearing the birds or not? So I'm. Um, j- there's a part of me that's just saying, honey, wake up. Come out of the trance of your mind. There is life out here. Are you seeing it? Are you hearing it? Are you... Do you feel in any way grateful for it? Um, The, you know, just the vision of plum trees in, in with pink blossoms on it, they're a sight to behold. Can I see them or am I so lost in my thoughts? So I do that every day. I ask myself what's not wrong every day? Am I okay now? And then, if there's something that's that's really bothering me, and I don't always do this Sam, and it's not an everyday practice, and I wish it was mm, I know those is just it and th- this usually happens in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning. Um, I'll catch myself wanting to get rid of a scary feeling or an uncomfortable. An uncomfortable feeling, doomed, for example. (laughs) I'm doomed. Or, you know, in this climate now, this the horror of what's going on with the environment and the animals and people and children. And I mean, I can really get off there into we're on the Titanic, we've hit the iceberg, there's no turning around. And oh my God, and really go that way. Um, with any number of things, environmental catastrophe, political catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe. I mean, just pick them. Uh, and so I bring myself back from the brink, and I just, that's the point, and I don't do this enough, or I'm just able to say, I get it. There's fear there. I'm sorry you're so frightened. Um, What's happening now? And also I can connect it with my childhood in which every day was the end of days. And so it's no wonder that I feel like every day is the end of days because it was the end of days. Yeah. It was.
0: Especially as an innocent.
2: And so then I start having some compassion for myself. And as soon as that happens, that I turn towards myself with kindness, then whatever been... <laughs> you know, so freaked out like a cat with its hair standing on edge and its tail straight up in the air. And that's how I feel sometimes. Then it starts relaxing and I, there starts to be space for what I'm feeling. And I that's all any kid wants anyway. And I think that's what the what I call them the ghost children inside of us want is to be heard, to be listened to, yeah. to be cherished to be loved and so if i can do that with different parts of myself at any given moment i consider that a huge success and that's hard to do
0: yeah i just wanted to ask for for any um listener who uh, has been the the victim as an innocent child of, of violence or craziness or um the the terrors that some kids get exposed to how on earth do you go on to be a normal human normal ish human
2: um, I think normal-ish is actually the word. I don't actually think there are normal humans. Yeah, that's
0: a, I, that was the wrong word. Yeah,
2: and I think what happens, and again, um, I'm not, I, I don't, by saying this, I don't intend to put a shine on the whole thing and make it seem like, oh, that was worth it because that was an opportunity for you to grow. Um, But in the end, I feel for me, What my own childhood did and the different kinds of abuse and um, the terror that I felt, particularly at night, I mean, I can still feel that at night, every night, starts being nighttime and I start feeling myself going into this old nervous system freak out, uh, you know, where, and I start drumming up things to be upset about because I don't want to face going in tonight and matt has thankfully said to me this is not the time to talk about this we are not talking about this now but 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 it's really important it's urgent i'm gonna... we're not talking about it janine and stop and so his voice combined with me understanding that this is an old sympathetic nervous system pattern that i got into where i got so freaked out at night uh, and so scared at night. So it's not that I, I ever have gotten over that. I haven't. It's still happening. And the best that can happen is that I'm aware of it and that I'm in some kind of compassionate relationship with it. Or if I'm not compassionate about it, doesn't have to be a compassionate relationship. It just has to be wow, I'm doing this again. Wow, that must have been really intense. If I keep doing this night after night after night after night for decades. So I think what going through all that, to get back to your question, um, in the end gives is some kind of, um, first of all, realization of how hard it is here on planet Earth. Fuck yeah. You know, that's the truth. It's just plain hard on planet Earth. Even when it's easy for people, it's hard. But when it's hard for people, it's really hard because of the tenderness and the vulnerability and the innocence and the, you know, the whole thing. It's just hard. Uh, And then we have these bodies that are fragile and vulnerable and can get in car accidents or fall or, you know, be shot at. I mean, it's, it's, it's something to have a human body. So, there's the recognition of, wow, it's really hard to be a human on planet Earth. It just really is. And so seeing that somehow um, and how hard it was for me when I was growing up and then how hard it is for my students because I teach sort of long-term retreats or long retreats and I hear their stories as well, my... um own childhood and having gone through what I went through, nothing surprises me anymore. Nothing scares me. Well, that's not true. Nothing scares me. I was scared last night in the middle of the night. I thought, oh my God, what's that noise? There's somebody in the house. So it's not true that nothing scares me, but no tale of human, what humans do to each other. At this point, I'm talking about childhood stuff. I'm not, because what's happening in the world is a like as a big, big macrocosm of the microcosm of what humans do to each other, just on a personal level. Yeah. Um, the way we're warring with each other and ourselves. Um, so I think it's given me, uh, the ability to hear the suffering of other people and to, to just be with them in their own dark nights. And um for them to feel like there's somebody there who isn't scared of what they're scared about and who is willing to sit with them no matter what.
0: That's a really beautifully honest answer. Especially for somebody who's in the field of of kind of I don't know if self help's the right word, but if in living a, a good life kind of field to say, um there's so, it just feels like there's so much pressure to to defeat the monster and abolish it and fix it and then I can t- I can show you the way you know no. it's really a beautifully honest answer mm. wow I love that <sighs> I talked to Matt about this but i am I am curious so part of your life this is total total um. Not related to anything we've talked about. (laughs) Part of your life is building a really beautiful life for yourself with Matt where you do have safety and security and then losing it all to Bernie Madoff. Right. And thankfully, you've been able to bounce back. Uh, And that's because you're still writing really good books and the world's still responding to it. But I was curious if you could could tell us your experience of that.
1: Yeah, sure. and, And
0: then how you survived the financial insecurity and the unknown of that. And I'm I'm currently the poorest I've ever been. And it, it comes up. There are times where I'm just like, yeah, you know what? My bills are barely paid, but they're paid. You know, I'm getting them paid, even if that means doing odd jobs at the end of the month. But then the terror comes in. And the terror comes in just like when you have been like kind of just playing around with the idea of death. And then all of a sudden you get that gut feeling when you're like, I'm not gonna think anymore. I don't know if you have that thought with death, but that's what, it's like, I can think about it and think about it and think about it. And then there's that point to where it's just pure terror. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your experience with the financial loss. And it's easy for people to say, Ah, it's just money. But when it's your livelihood, it's not just money.
2: Yes. We lost 30, we lost pretty much everything because we were so dumb that our very good and generous friend, Richard, had offered to let us in to something that he had been involved in for 30 years, which was a Madoff fund. His father knew Madoff and his mother knew Madoff and his mother worked with Bernie Madoff and in their office. And so for 30 years, Richard had been invested with Madoff and it had done well. And as Matt, I don't know if he said this to you, but when you bounce a ball up in the air for 30 years and it comes down every single time, you start believing in gravity. And so Richard believed in Madoff and we had made already disastrous financial decisions because (laughs) um, both of us loved our work, but we weren't very attentive to the money. It just, I always felt like, wow, I'm loving what I'm doing. And the money is extra. Um, and it pays the bills. And it was great. It was really great. But I didn't do what I did for the money. I did it because I loved it. I was a switchboard operator for money. And I was a waitress for money. And I mean, I did a lot of jobs for money, making avocado and cheese sandwiches for money. And we were so fortunate that we actually made money doing what we loved. And so after our financial advisor embezzled half of our money Ah. um, a couple of years before.
0: (laughs) I wasn't aware of that part. (laughs) Wow!
2: Our really good friend whose wedding we went to, whose kids we we were at, their christening, who we loved, he turned out he had been lying to us and embezzling our money. And after that, Richard felt very sorry for us and said, oh, you guys, I'm so sorry. Let me (laughs) let you in on, you know, this thing that I don't tell very many people about, but that my family's been involved in for 30 years and you could put as little as $200 in it or $2,000 in it or $10,000 in it. We felt so grateful. And we're still very close friends with Richard because his generosity was true and real. And so we did. And then we thought, oh, okay, well, Richard's been in it for 30 years and we make disastrous financial decisions and he's a lawyer and he knows a lot. So great. Let's put everything in there with Richard. And then I got a phone call and that was away for a couple of weeks. Um, And my friend called me and said, sit down. Madoff is in handcuffs and we've lost everything because she also had everything in Madoff. And I was so shocked and so terrified and so judgmental of myself because a four-year-old knows to diversify any money they have. If they have $10, you put $3 here, you put $2 here, you put $2 in the bank. Well, maybe not a four-year-old, but most people know it's really dumb to put it all in one place. Well, you
0: said stupid at the beginning. I want to call you out on it.
2: <laughs> but that's what I mean because we didn't want to pay attention, basically. There were really
0: good returns, though, right?
2: Not that good. Oh, really? You know, oh, okay. different people had different returns because he was such a crook, Bernie Madoff, yeah. that he was able to get, he was able to decide on the people he wanted to give 30% returns for. We had 8% returns. I mean, it wasn't, terrible and it was steady but it was still eight percent every year that's pretty good yeah um at a time when everybody else was doing quite well too um but i'm not complaining about that part so we lost it all matt was away um so i was pretty much by myself but i had a beautiful support system and the first person i called i called two people immediately the first person i called was the teacher I told you about that I'd been seeing every week. And she said to me, Nothing of any value has been lost, Janine. And I said to her, This is not the time to be spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> the, forget this. This is not the time to be spiritual. And she said, if you were ever going to be spiritual, this is the time. Mm. And it's not really the spiritual part. It's the um remember what's important part? And money isn't it. I was furious at her. I felt like she's not really, you know, she's not really um, empathizing with me very much here. We've just lost everything, every dime of 30 years of combined savings that we had after our financial advisor embezzled the money that he embezzled. Um, So I went through a couple of days of maybe maybe a week or so of terror. And um, another friend pretty much said the same thing to me, that um, nothing of any value has been lost. So I had some very smart friends. And then I realized that to make it through the night, I, I, I wasn't sleeping because I didn't know if we had enough money to pay the next month's mortgage or where Matt and I would stay. In fact, Annie told me we could come and live with her and
0: um that sounds right
2: (laughs) you know she said to me you can come and live with me but you cannot buy your fancy sweaters anymore and um so she offered for us to come and live with her jean my teacher offered us to move into her living room i had two offers one from annie one from jean and so i knew we wouldn't be homeless because we had friends but then I realized that the thing that I had to learn to do, which I had never done, and which was, I think, the biggest lesson for me, maybe in my entire life, um, because it made me realize what was possible, I realized that if I was going to get through the night, I had to see what was good. What, what what I could find, not what I had lost. And so I had to focus on what I still had. And that was such a fierce practice. It was such a fierce practice because talk about being wedded to negativity, talk about being drawn to the dark side of things. I mean, to really the, the catastrophic because this did feel catastrophic. And I wanted to dwell there because it was so
0: juicy. And it's like valid catastrophe almost in a way, right? exactly. Like nobody's going to be like, oh, come on, don't believe the story. Don't believe the story in your head and be like, I'll take your money and we can see. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yes. In fact, Tammy Simon, who started this uh, company called Sounds True, um, which interviews a lot of teachers and all that kind of spiritual thing. She said to me right afterwards, she interviewed me within a month and said to me, You know, I got to say, I can talk a good spiritual game, but when it comes to money, if I lost all my money, forget it. You know, I don't know what I would do. And so because I couldn't sleep and because I lived in such terror, I mean, talk about a cat whose tail is straight up in the air and whose fur is sticking straight up. I realized if I was going to live, I was going to have to and be sane, I was going to have to start focusing on the question that i asked you before am i okay now do i have a roof over my head now do i have enough to eat now do i um is do i still have this beautiful teacup that i love now do i still have chocolate in my cabinet now do i have friends now? Do I have a body? I'm still alive. I'm here on planet earth. I'm above ground now. And uh, and Sam, I had to do that probably a hundred times a day because the draw, magnet to steel draw to the negative was so intense and to catastrophe was so intense. And it changed something in me forever, forever, because and I'm going to tell you what the caveat is there <laughs> in a second, but because when I didn't do that, it was so disastrous and I and I was so abjectly terrified uh, and because I really didn't know if we could make it through another month yeah. and how we were going to do it um, and it felt dumb to not focus on the negative because it was that question you asked me before. Well, if you don't sort of focus on the negative, then how do you get anything done? I mean, how was I going to get to work? How was I going to figure out how we were going to make money Um, if it wasn't for that? If it wasn't just saying, Janine, you cannot start focusing on the pretty teacup in your hand and the tea you're drinking and the fact that you still have arms and legs, give me a break. We have a catastrophe here. Get to work. Um, But, from that place of, and the only way I can call it is that I started to feel like I was backwashed with some kind of light. I mean, it was really something I felt. Well, maybe I should say it this way. I, every day I felt lighter and more buoyant to the point where my mother, who was calling me every day at some, about 10 days into it said, How are you? And I said, You know, I'm doing great. And she said to me, I have a question, sweetheart, and I won't judge you no matter what the answer is, tell me. And I said, what is it? And she said, are you on drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Because she didn't believe that anybody could be doing great having gone through what we Matt and I had just gone through. But it was from there, Sam. And this also answers your question of how do you get anything done ever if you're in a place of the not dropping the Fix Me Up project. From the place of buoyancy, And equanimity, and really, it's very rare for me to use this word about myself, but I really felt like that. I was able to see, oh, I could write a piece now about this, about what Bernie Madoff couldn't steal from me. And I wrote a piece and Annie introduced me to her editor at Salon. I think her name was Sarah Hapola and she accepted the piece and she put it on Salon. It became number one very quickly And because everybody gravitates towards catastrophe, of course. Um, but then because of that piece... My agent said to me, "Why don't you write a book about this?" And because so it all, and so then I wrote a book, and then I, I you know, called Lost and Found uh, about that, and I finished the book I had been working on, which I was stalling on, Women, Food, and God, and in finishing that book, you know, I sent it to a friend who gave it to Oprah, who but I wasn't paralyzed with fear. So that's the answer to your question in a way, that there is another way to get things done. That's not about holding the whip. That's not about harshness. It seems incredibly counterintuitive, just like eating what your body wants and not dieting seems counterintuitive. It seems that I'll binge for the rest of my life, but actually there is a middle way there between dieting and binging, and there is another way to work and to live besides tearing yourself down and building yourself up and th- those two poles. And I discovered that in the Madoff loss to the point where I would say besides meeting Matt and being with him and um, writing, which I love, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Because it showed me that it's my mind, that it wasn't the situation that was causing me suffering. It was the way that my mind was interpreting it. So there was the situation and there was my story about it. Yeah. There was the reality, and then there was my interpretation of it. And it was my interpretation of it and the stories that I was telling myself about it that were making me terrified. So that when I stopped telling myself those stories, I I started feeling lighter. And I started feeling more capable of doing something because I was no longer paralyzed by by judgment and harshness and terror. And that, those learnings there, the fact that it was not the situation, it was my story about the situation. Yeah. And that no situation was unworkable and that it was crucial for me every day with my love of and marriage to negativity, uh, crucial every day to still do those things I told you about. Am I okay now? What's not wrong now? Am I in my body now? You know, um, all those, that was the beginning of those things. And so that really taught me that no matter what happens, to me, I will be okay if I'm able to, not that I won't be grief stricken and not that I won't have my heart broken and not that I won't be hurt and um, all of that, but I know on some essential level, because if I could do that with that, then I feel like I can do that with anything that holds me in good stead. Now, do I remember that in the middle of the night when I'm ranting and raving and, you know? No, not always, but I'm beginning to remember it more and more.
0: Yeah, that's one of the blessings of of seeing the underworld and not giving up and coming through It's like, yeah, I mean, most of the problems I run into now, it's like, come on, I'm battle-tested. I haven't met one thing that has defeated me. Yes,
2: exactly. Because,
0: you know, as long as you keep going, you're unstoppable. And it has nothing to do with speed. Right. You know, it's just if you keep going, guess what? You're unstoppable. Right. You know, and so that is the one kind of reason I'm at least grateful to seeing the worst in humanity, seeing the worst in myself, really taking myself to the extreme lows of the human existence is that it's like, you know, when new things come up, uh, IRS bill or anything, it's just like, come on, this isn't going to stop me. Right, you know, exactly. This is,
2: this is a bill.
0: Yeah, this is a bill. This and is a bill. With my financial insecurity, uh, yeah, it's getting to the present is what helps. And often I'm I'm actually, um, I think my spirits are higher than they've been when I was very comfortable. Uh, but it does mean that when I get a bill and I go, ooh, I can't pay this because there might be a bill in the future that I'm going to need this money yes, for. Yes, right. That's and I just go, thing. Wait a second. This is not my money. I actually owe, like, this is their money because I owe them the money. And when the next bill comes, we'll figure that out yes, when it comes. Yeah, good. So you've been very generous with your time. Mm. I guess we'll have to have you on again at some point. I
2: loved it. I love uh, talking to you, Sam.
0: But uh, I like to end it this way, which is if you could send a message to your younger self about everything you know now to be true in a short little message of just, here's what I know, this is what you need to remember, what would it be?
2: I would say, there are no mistakes, honey. You're not damaged. I know it looks like you think you are. I know you feel like you are. But you are loved and kindness. Be kind to yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Be sweet with yourself because you deserve it you're worth it
0: thank you that's all the time we have for today's episode i hope you enjoyed it remember janine roth's new book this messy magnificent life just came out worth the read i read it loved it for more of us you can go to hellohumans.co check out the stories other podcasts we're doing cool stuff and i i hope you like it until next time have a great day